Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As we turn a corner and enter into the final chapter here of Paul's final letter to the Thessalonians, I want to remind us that this church was a healthy church. In fact, of all the churches that Paul planted, and certainly of all the churches that he wrote to, the Thessalonians were one of, if not the best, of all of the churches that fell under his care. He sets the tone early on in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, saying, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This was not a church buried under the weight of gross sins or doctrinal error. They were a healthy church. They were a maturing church. This was a bragworthy church. This was a church you tell your friends about. This is a church that you have no qualms or questions when it comes to inviting them to come and be a part of the fellowship. This was a good church. They didn't need a spiritual spanking. They needed a warm hug. And so Paul gives them that through the entirety of this letter. This letter is filled with comfort. And that's what chapter 1 was all about. Comfort. He says, your suffering won't last forever. And divine justice will certainly balance the scales in the end. When Jesus is revealed from heaven and his enemies are destroyed and he is forever glorified in you. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, he continues to comfort them in their confusion. And he clears the air. He says in verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come. Someone had come along after Paul had left them and that person had shaken them up. They had taken the Thessalonians and they had completely thrown them out of their element. They had disturbed them into thinking that they had somehow missed the rapture and that the day of the Lord had actually begun, that it had come. They thought that the overwhelming wrath of God had begun and its descent upon mankind and that they were somehow stuck in the middle of it. And so most of chapter 2 is spent reminding them of past conversations where Paul had already addressed this issue. He says, you can't be in the tribulation. Because the Antichrist hasn't even been revealed yet. And you know this because I talked about these things whenever I was with you in the past. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, we have more of the same. Nothing changes. It's the same as it's been all throughout this letter. Comfort upon comfort upon comfort. Just more and more comfort. The Thessalonians were unique in that they were an exceptionally strong and faithful church. But they needed comfort. And Paul loved all of the churches that he planted. But this one had a very special place in his heart. His tone throughout the entire letter is that of a loving mother. It's not one of a chastising father. You read some of the other New Testament letters and Paul knew how to drop the hammer when it was necessary. He knew how to call people out on the carpet. He knew how to pull out gross doctrinal error and sins and so many other hindrances within the church. But he doesn't need to do that here. He didn't have to do that with the Thessalonians because this was a good church. A little confused, needing a little correction, yes. They so desperately needed that, but more so they needed comfort more than anything else. So in that spirit, he begins chapter 3 with a prayerful prayer request. And that's where we are this morning. Let's look at our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
starting in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul, the apostle, church planner, pastor, this guy was a shepherd. I mean, he couldn't even give you a prayer request without flipping the whole thing around and praying for you at the end. I mean, he couldn't help himself. He loved his flock so much. He loved the church. You've heard it said before that so-and-so wears their heart on their sleeve. Well, Paul, he, he wore his heart on his prayers, and he made them known. He made, the, he made it common knowledge among the churches to everyone that he would encourage, that he prayed for them continually and constantly. He did this for all of the churches. As we noted once before to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. To the Romans, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. To the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I did not cease, or I do not cease, to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Thessalonians, in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. In our letter here, chapter 1, verse 11, To this end we always pray for you. And even to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Paul was a praying man. He was a praying man, and we see that all throughout his letters. And he encouraged others to pray as he did. So he opens this final section of this final letter to the special church with a personal prayer request. And it's a good request, worthy of our attention, worthy of our consideration and our imitation. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting or a home Bible study or whatever the occasion where everyone is expected to go around in a circle and share their prayer requests out loud? Has anyone else? I can't be the only person to have ever been to one of these things. Okay, I see a few hands. I see a few nods. I see a few smiles. It's true. Um, We... All of us, most of us, have been to an event like that at some point in time or another. Here's a piece of advice. If you ever find yourself in a situation like that and you want to look really holy, just say unspoken when it's your turn, okay? That's all you have to do. Um, Actually, if you ever want to find out who the gossips are in the group, just say unspoken. You know, they'll swarm you by the time it's done to figure out what it is that they're praying about. Anyway, don't do that. Don't do that. But situations like that have the potential of becoming stressful, especially when you don't know how to make a decent prayer request. You're not sure how to do it. Um, We've all been there. I've been there, waiting my turn, anxiously wondering to myself, sifting through the database, well, my dog did die this last week, and Aunt Ethel does have that thing on her toe, and I just, should I bring that up? Should I not bring that up? What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? Uh, Should I just say I'm struggling with sin and leave it general? I mean, what what do I do? 
you know, what should I say in a situation like that? We've all been there. We've all had that struggle. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the Apostle Paul probably never had that problem. Just, just a guess. Because typically people who pray a lot continually are more aware of what's going on around them, both inside and out. Paul was always praying. And he was always aware of just how much prayer he needed. So I'd like to draw your attention here in our text to three features of this Holy Spirit-inspired prayer request that's sitting in front of you this morning. Three features of a solid prayer request. And the first thing we see is the content of the request itself. We see the Apostle's request. The Apostle's request. Look at the first two verses there. He says, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. He begins this request with, Finally, brothers. And that's a wonderful beginning, isn't it? Finally, brothers. He says, finally, just to say, if there's one last thing that I would like to address, one final request of you, this would be it. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. Even the Apostle Paul needed prayer. And if he needed prayer, believe me, folks, we need it. We need prayer. I hesitate to ask this, but is there anyone in the room here this morning who does not need the prayer of others? Anyone here? No one? No takers? Has anyone here arrived yet? Is there anyone here who's matured so greatly in their walk with the Lord that they no longer need the Spirit's help? Everyone needs prayer. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, can't we all just agree on that? Everyone needs prayer. The apostles needed prayer. Your pastors need prayer. Your church family, your unsaved neighbor, your unsaved family member, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need prayer. We all do. We all need prayer. Even the apostles. You see, here on earth, the hierarchy looks something like this, okay? You have Jesus, the apostles, and everyone else, okay? That's the hierarchy, Because you can't get higher than Jesus, and the apostles were Jesus' spokesmen here on earth. They were the messengers and carriers of divine truth. So, how would you like to be that person's prayer partner? How would you like to be hooked up with an apostle to pray for them continually? I mean, most of us would rather just send a check in the mail, right? Say, just tell me what your physical needs are and who to make it out to, Paul. Just don't ask me to pray for you and your spiritual needs. Because after all, what could a living, breathing apostle of Jesus Christ possibly want from me when it comes to prayer? But you'll notice here that even the apostle Paul needed prayer. And his attitude and his posture towards prayer was right there on par with where he calls everybody else to be. He doesn't set himself any higher. He doesn't even set himself any lower. He just says, brothers, brothers. He says, brothers, pray for me. And he gives them these two requests that we find here in the text. He says, when you pray for me, here are the top two needs that I have at the moment. Number one, he says, pray for gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. That's the rest of verse one. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He wants to see God's word in action. Let's flip back a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just a page or two to the left, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God 
to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I love that. I love that. I don't know about you, but I love everything about those verses. According to Acts 16, Paul and Silas had been stripped naked by an angry mob, beaten with rods, and thrown into prison during their time in Philippi before heading off to Thessalonica in chapter 17. Most people would have hung it up after that. Most people would have said, oh, okay, we had a successful missionary journey, let's go home. But that's not what Paul and Silas do. Paul says here, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He goes on to say, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. These men couldn't help themselves. They just opened their mouth and Bible would spill out of them. They had to proclaim the gospel. And look at the effect that this bold, untethered gospel proclamation had on the Thessalonians. Look at what it did for them. Jump down to verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Friends, there is only one thing in the world that is powerful enough to both save and sanctify. And that is God's word. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough. There are a lot of good things out there. A lot of things that will help ease the pain. That will help make things a little bit smoother for your transition from one day to the next. But there is only one thing that is truly powerful enough to change your heart. To change your situation. To change your life. And that is the word of God. We should do everything in our power, everything that we possibly can to boldly proclaim the gospel and pray for its power to speed ahead and be honored in the lives that it impacts. That's prayer request number one, and it's a good request, is it not? Okay, I think I heard one amen. Well, listen to this quote from one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons titled, Christ and His Coworker. I love this quote. I have to share it with you. And I think it's so appropriate here in light of this request. I wish I had half of this man's gifting. Spurgeon once declared, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do, yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. End quote. Church, we must preach the gospel. We must. To our friends, to our family, to this dying world that is quickly, quickly running out of time. We must let the lion out. 
Listen, if you have a choice between defending the gospel and declaring the gospel, I hope that you declare the gospel. I hope that you know the gospel well enough, not just to defend it. There is a time and a place for defense, and we must be able to give an account and defend the gospel. We must. But if we spend all of our time doing that and we never declare the gospel, we have failed. We have kept the lion in a cage, and the power of God will not go forth. We have to let the lion out. Declare the gospel and pray for the boldness to do so. Pray for others to be faithful in that endeavor as well. And pray that God's spirit would powerfully work in those who are saved by the message. That's request number one. That's request number one, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Request number two is for God's protection. God's protection. Verse two, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Unless God has hidden you under a rock for most of your life, you know that this world is full of wicked and evil men. The word here, delivered, it means rescued. Paul's focus is for the messengers of the gospel to be rescued. Why? So that the gospel can continue to be sped forward. So it can continue to spiral out and perform this powerful work in others. Romans 8, 7 declares that for the mind that that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. So if God doesn't work in a person's life, as we looked at last week at the end of chapter 2, if he doesn't cherish, chose, if he doesn't cherish, chose, uh, choose, call, change, and comfort an undeserving sinner into his kingdom, then it's just not going to happen on its own. It is impossible for a hostile mind set on the flesh to wake up and start obeying God unless God is the one who does the waking. But until that happens, we are all self-declared enemies of God. Every single one of us, and those without faith, are hostile, not only towards God, but his message, and his messengers as well. As we have already seen, Paul suffered at the hands of wicked and evil men. He knew how bad it was, and he knew how bad it could be, and yet he still preached the gospel. He still let that lion out boldly. He still asked for protection so that the wickedness of faithless men would not get in the way. And that's how we should be. That's how we should pray. We should pray for the boldness. And we should pray that the gospel, when it is released, when it does go out into the world, that it would be effective. That God would do this work. That he would bring those enemies against him into his divine family. That he would adopt them as sons and daughters. That he would show divine grace and mercy to them as he has already extended it to us. We should be praying for those things, most certainly. But also pray that there would be protection there. Protection for both the message and the messenger, so that the message can continue to go forth and change hearts and lives. That's the apostles' requests. The apostles' requests. Next we see the apostles' resolve. The apostles' resolve. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Note the contrast there against the wickedness of evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. That's so good. You realize that we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be afraid of in the slightest when it comes to the wickedness of man. 
I mean, who cares about faithless men when we have a faithful God? Who cares? At this point, come what may, we can be confident that God will fulfill every promise, every pledge, every affirming word that is found here in his word. He will accomplish everything that he has said because he has said so. And so full of faith, Paul reveals this confidence with three more areas of resolve. First of all, concerning those who belong to the Lord, he says, God will establish. God will establish. In other words, God will take you and pour cement into your faith. God is going to lock you into this with feet planted firmly on a rock, unshakable and immovable. He will establish you. So there's no question in your mind, in Satan's mind, or in anyone else's mind that you do in fact belong to him. He will establish that fact. He will establish you in that fact. And Paul is confident about this because he knows that the word, uh, that the word has been honored among them. You can see the spirit working in their lives. He is powerfully at work within their, their members. And because of that, he knows for a fact that God will make good on all of his promises. And he will establish them. Secondly, for those who belong to the Lord, he knows that God will guard. God will guard. When we looked at the man of lawlessness in chapter 2, we saw how easy it will be for Christ to destroy him when the time comes. And yet, when the Antichrist arrives, when he comes onto the scene, he, he doesn't arrive with his own power. He arrives with all of the deceptive power of Satan. All of the demonic powers of the Antichrist and Satan and the enemies of God, it will all come together and culminate itself into this one sinful man. And yet... How does Christ destroy him? You remember? With the breath of his mouth. He doesn't even lift a finger. He doesn't lift a sword. He doesn't doesn't have to exert any effort whatsoever. He just opens his mouth and the man is ruined. Friends, we don't need to be scared of the devil. God will guard us from the evil one. Paul was confident of that fact. And we can be confident of that fact too. Notice this is not a request. uh, This is not the request part of the passage. Paul was confident. He was making an assertion here. This is, this is his resolve on display. And he's confident not just for himself as an apostle, but for the Thessalonians and for all believers by extension where the Spirit is present and powerfully at work within them. And here he ties that fact that God will guard you to the very faithfulness of God. He ties those things together. He says the Lord is faithful. He will do these things. He will establish and he will spiritually protect those who are his. And that should be a great comfort to us this morning. Now listen, you are a fool. That being said, you are a foolish individual if you go out trying to pick fights with the devil. Okay? Do not do that. If we have learned anything, even in the last year or two, and looking at 2 Peter, looking at Jude, before I came here even, as Pastor Bill walked through that book, I mean, you do not pick fights with Satan. he, He is above your pay grade. Okay? He will spit you out, all right, in the sense that it's totally inappropriate for you to do so. Even archangels are not allowed to do that. You don't have the right to do that. So don't go looking for Satan, okay? If we start singing songs here about dancing on his head or going to his camp and stealing things back, I'm out, okay? I'm sorry, but I'm out because that is not what we as believers are called to do regarding spiritual warfare and our interactions with Satan. But here's the point, folks. We don't have to be afraid of him. 
We have no room for fear in our hearts when it comes to Satan. Don't give him that ground, okay? You have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And there is nothing, there is nothing that he can do to you, okay? He can, he can send things into your life, yeah? He can make things hard for you. He can afflict other people who aren't believers and they can make your life miserable. There are a number of things, creative things, that he's had plenty of time to figure out to make your life hard. But don't be afraid of him because he can't touch you, okay? You are guarded. You are guarded by God. And that should be a very, very comforting fact for all of us this morning because it's tied to his faithfulness. And God has never lied and God is not going to start lying tomorrow, okay? He has promised that he would do this for you. So be confident in that. Be confident in it because God will establish and guard you. Thirdly, the apostle is certain that you will obey. You will obey. Look at verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that, you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. This is what children of God do. Children of God obey. They learn to obey God's commands. Let's turn for a moment to the book of Hebrews. I was preparing for this message, and this text came to mind. I have two little girls, and recently I was reminded that obedience does not come naturally. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. When they're old enough, I can't wait to share this passage with them. But that day has not come yet. When my kids disobey, though, I I love them so much, I cannot just allow them to grow up believing that they can do whatever they want and there are no consequences for their actions. I love them so much. So I have to discipline them because I love them. And as God's children cherish, chosen, and called, he does the same thing with us. And that's what this passage is all about, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, no one gets a free pass. God does this for everyone. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, if you're a part of his divine family, then guess what? God loves you so much, he is going to discipline you. None of us, again, none of us have arrived yet. We all need prayer. None of us have have achieved a state of perfection where we don't don't constantly need to say no and put off and put on and say yes. And uh, none of us are there yet, right? So guess what that means? We all disobey. We all fail. We all fall. And as children who fall constantly under the guidance and under the direction of a holy God and a loving Father who really does care for us and love us so much that he doesn't want us to grow up and keep continuing on thinking that there's no consequences for these actions and he wants us to be holy, he wants us to grow in holiness. So guess what that means? If you're a believer this morning, you will be disciplined. It's a fact. All right? No amens. I didn't expect one. But that is exactly what he says here in Hebrews chapter 12. Moving on in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, and praise God for that. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
And he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. And isn't that true? It's okay to say amen to that. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. There are times when I know for a fact that the Lord is disciplining me. I know He is. And for the moment, it's not pleasant. It's pain. But in the end, we are made better by it. And if we continue to read there through Hebrews 12, we would also see that we are made stronger by it as well. Church Christians learn to obey. It's what we do. Before conversion, obedience is impossible. After regeneration, it's expected, commanded, and made manifest in the believer's life. And this again goes back to the work of the Spirit. And his energizing employment of the gospel to powerfully work inside of us. Within each one of us. That doesn't mean that we keep repeating the message of the cross to ourselves over and over and over again like a magic mantra. But it does mean that when truth arrives, when discipline comes, we respond in a way that brings joy to our Heavenly Father. We don't just throw our arms up in the air in some happy, strange abandonment and say, thank God, pain has come. We don't do that. Instead, we break over our sin. We crumble at our offenses. We repent by the Spirit's power. And we start putting one foot in front of the other for the sake of doing that which is right. That is a proper response to God's discipline. That is a proper response to the pains and the hurts and all of the things that we suffer and endure here in life, especially when we know that we have been disobedient and we deserve correction. We deserve discipline. Even if it is not what we want at the time, even if it's painful, we need to learn what it means to obey. The sooner we learn each lesson we face, the better off we'll be. Paul was confident that all of these three things were true for the Thessalonian church. And church, I am confident that they are true for this church as well. I believe that. I believe that God has established and guarded this church. And I am confident that you are doing and that you will do what he has commanded. I am confident of that. Especially as we've been going through this series here in 2 Thessalonians. There's a lot of comfort, but there's also some correction as well. And the fact that you're still here and you haven't gone to another church down the road tells me that there's something going on. That you, you respond well to the word of God. And I know, I know that he is powerfully working within this congregation. I know that he is working within you. And friends, I am thankful for that. I am overwhelmed with thankfulness to see that. I know that he has established and guarded this church. And I know that you are obeying. And that is huge. Well, what an opening so far for chapter 3. We've seen the apostles' request and the apostles' resolve. Well, finally... We see the apostles' regard. The apostles' regard. Look at verse 5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Again, Paul can't help himself. He begins with a request and he ends with a prayer. His focus is still on establishing their comfort. And I love how he says here, May the Lord direct your hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts. When it comes to the believer's heart, God's place is in the director's chair. This same God who made us has every right to govern and control every aspect of our lives. 
This God has every right to sit enthroned on our hearts and our minds and to direct and guide our actions when it comes to everything that we face and do. He governs the course of our lives. He sits on the seat of our emotions, our will and our wants, and he tells us where to go. And with a pastor's heart full of love, Paul says, I want the Lord to guide your heart. I want him to direct your heart. I want him to tell you where to go. And I know that you are already obeying him. So you are going to go in line with that. And may the Lord just continue to push you forward, to drive you through to the very end. And I want to see that happen in two more critical areas here. He says, I want you to know, first of all, God's love. I want you to know God's love. And I want you to know, secondly, the stability in Christ. I want you to know what stability in Christ looks like. God's love and stability in Christ. We talked about God's love last week. How God has determined long before this world ever began that he would set his love upon you and send his son to die in your place. For all who will come to him, he decided in eternity past to love those chosen for salvation with an everlasting love. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to hop online and listen to that message. Hop online, listen to the message from last week. I realize it's far more annoying to hear my voice without me standing in front of you. I get that. But try to muddle through and pick up as much of the content as you can. Not because I have anything to contribute, but because God's word is powerful. And because that particular passage struck a chord even with me as I was preaching it last week. It is such a powerhouse passage, so I encourage you, read that passage, look at the end of chapter 2, and listen to that message if you have the opportunity to this week. Because it is not merely enough to just taste, or read about, or listen to information about the love of God. You need to experience it for yourself, and you need to be directed by it. God's love changes everything. It changes everything. And you want to be controlled by that love. You want to be directed by it. You want God to be in the director's chair when it comes to his love in your heart. God's love changes everything. And the same can be said for the stability in Christ. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. That word steadfastness, it literally means endurance. Christ is the ultimate testament of that, of endurance. He endured the cross. He endured your sin. He endured the crushing weight of a holy God's wrath towards you for your sin. There is no one more patient, loving, kind, enduring, steadfast, and stable as Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. So this is a good prayer for our hearts to be directed towards endurance, towards stability in Christ, the most stable man to ever live. Because this is something that we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot do it for ourselves. Even though he isn't listed here explicitly, the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes this work in our lives. So once again, we have all three members of the triune Godhead working together in perfect unity so that you may grow in both love and stability. Pastor Paul, as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit, he had so much regard for these people, for this precious church. And when we take time to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it would do well for us to do likewise. We should regard others. We should regard our brothers and sisters that are gathered here together today and all of the other brothers and sisters in the churches across town and beyond. We should pray for them this way, with so much regard. Well, I'd like to conclude our time in this passage with an evaluation and a charge. 
First, the evaluation. How do you measure up? How do you measure up to this passage? As I was reading it this week, I, I found myself continually struck with these questions. As I'm walking through each phrase, phrase by phrase, line by line of what we just looked at. How do you measure up? Are you preaching the gospel or preventing it from speeding ahead? Do you spend all your time defending it without declaring it? Have you let the lion out? Are you confident with your resolve? Has our faithful God been establishing you and protecting you from the evil one? Have you determined to obey God's commands at all costs, in all things, in every way that he has commanded you and called you to be? And do you pray for others as you would pray for yourself, that God would sit in the director's chair and tell your heart where to go? towards the love of God and the stability of Christ. In light of our text, these are excellent questions worth asking. And they're questions that each and every one of us should answer. Now, in light of these truths, here's the charge. Here's what I would give you before we call it a morning. When it comes to your prayers, friends, request the right things. Pray for good things. Pray that the gospel would run ahead of you and be effective. That it would not be hindered by wicked men who oppose the truth. Pray with resolve, pray with confidence, knowing that the Lord is faithful and that he will establish and guard his elect. And as you obey him, your assurance in him will continue to grow. And then finally, pray with regard for others. Pray with love that the Supreme Director would fill your brothers and sisters in Christ with the love of God and the steadfast endurance of Christ himself. Pray for those things. If you want to biblically own your next prayer meeting, Pray intentionally for these things, in this way, for this reason. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you again. We are just overwhelmed by the depths of your grace and your mercy towards us. And I thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the lion of the gospel. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, that we would let the lion out, that we would faithfully and boldly proclaim your truth to a dying world that is dying faster and faster every day. I pray that we would be faithful, that when we stand before you on that day, when we see you face to face and we look you in the eye, that we would hear those words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray that that would be true for every person in this room, that we would be faithful servants that we would do everything that you have commanded of us, that we would trust you and we would obey you, that we would have confidence and resolve, that we would put that resolve and that confidence to action, that we would put one foot in front of the other, that what would start out as baby steps would become a full-fledged run before our time here is over, that we would just follow you and completely abandon our sin and every hindrance and everything that pulls us down that brings us back to the grave that threatens to destroy so much that you have built. Lord, I pray that those things would be gone. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that that spirit would powerfully work within us through your word to give feet to our faith and that we would be found obedient in everything that you have called us to do. And Lord, I pray that our love for one another would just grow. Like the Thessalonians, I pray that our love and our faith would just increase and keep on increasing. I pray that we would regard each other in our prayers, but also in our speech and our actions. I pray that your love would so fill our hearts. Start with us individually. Fill our hearts so full of your love so that others can't help but be changed by it. They can't help but be affected by your love. God, do that for each and every person here. 
Fill us with your love and fill us with your stability. Fill us with your patience, your endurance. And help us, Lord, to forbear and to grow together in deeper and deeper bonds of unity. Lord, you have blessed this church. You have guarded us, you have established us, and you have set us on a course of obedience. And I pray that you would continue to do so. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the work that you have begun because we know, we know according to your word and your faithfulness that whatever you begin, you finish. And you will bring this work to completion. So thank you, Lord. Again, we give you praise and we give you glory and we give you all the honor because you are worthy of it and more. In your name, amen.